leader. There's lots of informal leaders in the group as well, but that formal leader is sometimes the first person to stand up and say, Hey, I, I messed this up. Um, and that is a, you know, that is a signal that, that over time says to other people in the group, particularly new people are coming into the group that over time says, Hey, it's actually okay to stand up here and talk about our mistakes, our misgivings, our shortcomings, our foibles, whatever they might be. But I would say that's a small signal that can be a very powerful one. Just mm -hmm. that formal leader saying, hey, you know, I messed this up. Here's what I was thinking, because I didn't set out to mess up, right? Here's the information right. I had. Here's what I was thinking. And then here was the outcome. And what happened in between there, that's the complex piece, right? Uh, so that's a, that is a, an important uh, signal, you know, just pausing to reflect. Hey, I'm Renita, and you're listening to The High EQ Founder, a podcast about how to leverage your emotional intelligence so you can evolve faster and level up as a leader. You know, I often say founders are like the Navy SEALs of business. They're both leading small, agile teams, often in stealth mode through uncertainty and chaos. And today I'm speaking with retired Navy SEAL Dave Cooper, who's built some of the best teams in the Navy SEALs. He was the one who oversaw the training for SEAL Team 6 in preparing for the mission to capture Osama bin Laden. And he's been awarded some of the military's highest recognition, including multiple silver stars, bronze stars, and service medals. Dave and I talked about how tough guys show vulnerability without looking weak, the small gestures that create a culture where people feel safe to disagree, the dangers of authority bias and why command and control leadership doesn't work anymore, and how he structured after action reviews to extract more learning from their mistakes in preparing for the Bin Laden mission. Enjoy my conversation with Dave. So, in a world that's becoming more and more VUCA, every time we open a newspaper, it's volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Uh, it's increasingly clear to me and, and to others, I think, that the conventional approach to leadership has to change, has to evolve. And we're moving from this command and control style of leadership to empowering teams and individuals. And what I've seen is it can be really tricky because there's a lot of nuance in this approach. It's not just all or nothing. And in fact, many of our role models still operate in that authoritarian model, which is do it because I said so. So I thought that would be a good place to start because as you've said, humans, as humans, we have this strong unconscious bias to follow authority. And if a superior tells you to do something, we tend to follow it even if it's wrong. And you've also said having one person tell other people what to do is not a reliable way to make good decisions. So for the leaders and particularly founders who are listening in, this is a double-edged sword, I think, because they could have an authority bias with regard to their investors or their board of directors. And then on the other hand, they could be seen as the authority uh, figure for their when it comes to their team. So I'm just going to open that up. What's what's your take and, and how can people in these positions of relative authority mitigate this bias? Well, the first one step is becoming aware of that, that we have these biases and bias is often a term where we, you know, we think, well, I get bias exists. I'm not biased. You are. Right. Uh, right. 
that's not perhaps the best mindset. I think, you know, if you're human, you're biased. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It could lead to some bad things, but, you know, biases can also, uh, you know, uh, nudge us towards taking precautions. So not all biases are bad, but um, mm. yeah, the first step is becoming aware that we are human and, and that we are biased and that we can, um, you know, we can get around those biases. I would tell you it's, it's might not be easier to do it as a group, but it, it is certainly in a complex world more effective to to uh, get try and get around those biases as a group and to help each other you know to even to bring that up to broach the subject hey you know what biases might be impacting us here and then we can go off in a conversation or a dialogue or something like that but yeah. Yeah. first step is awareness i think and that's you know that's something i've noticed about just in reading what you've written and what you said is that you take this sort of presumptive approach it's not do we have a bias? Did I do something wrong here? Am I missing something? You pr set out this presumption, which makes it easier, I think, for people to step up and say, well, maybe we have this bias. Do you do that intentionally? Is that how do, how do you think about that? I would say, yeah, these days I certainly do it intentionally. Did I always do it that way? No, but I, you know, I remind people that, uh, while what we did, particularly in the successful SEAL teams I was a part of, anybody can do those things. But there is a selection pressure at work that we might not have. Uh, it's there. We might not feel it so poignantly as we do in a SEAL team. And that selection pressure is, you know, life or death. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you put that pressure on people, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it this, this tendency to broach these um, subjects like, you know, hey, I might be part of the problem here, or uh, I certainly come with biases. I'm seeing the world through a biased lens. You know, we, we remind each other of that stuff all the time, and that's helpful. So these days I, I do it consciously. As I said, I didn't always was part of the culture, I suppose you could say. Yeah, I would love to talk more about that because I think there are plenty of people out there listening to this conversation who have read the books about vulnerability and about, you know, going first and yet when it comes to that moment it's not that easy so how do you develop that that courage that ability to just kind of step up and you know show people that that weakness perhaps that's a great question and i well i don't like to necessarily talk about the 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 tactical aspects of missions there was a point in the bin laden raid where you know, President Obama looked at his cabinet members and said, hey, what do you think? And went around the table and, and to a man, uh, they said, hey, don't do this. And, you know, there were those of us watching this and we saw our our chances of going on this mission just plummet. And this was the first time in a decade that we actually had some kind of information or intelligence that we mm -hmm. thought was uh, was actionable or good. Right. So all of those cabinet members and i said to a man there was a woman in there that disagreed but to a man they said hey don't do it for various reasons political risk um and all basically comes down boiled down to all different kinds of risk um some said hey we're not even sure it's him you know and, and when we were as close to being certain it was him as you could possibly be and they knew that they didn't have the courage to say hey go for it and they're focused on their own positions and their own status and stuff like that well at this low point um, the, one of the analysts, just, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a slight tiny woman stood up amongst all the big, tough Navy SEALs oh. and said, Hey, sir, 
Um, you know, and that's, you know, and she said, here's how we know, right? And that kind of courage is, you know, is, is humbling. But I, I ask people, do you want to, an organization or a team where it takes some kind of Wonder Woman level of courage to raise your hand and say, hey, I, I, I might be seeing something that you're not, or do you want to create that environment where, you know, that is the norm? And I would say, I would, I would hope people say, hey, the latter is what we want to create, where it doesn't take that amount of courage. And that is certainly a cultural um, aspect, right? You know, do we know this, right? Do you feel safe enough to raise your hand and say something that might be uncomfortable? Um, fancy term psychological safety but mm -hmm. that's psychological safety is not something we can order it's not something we uh just insert it's something that emerges from a, a group of people who are mutually respectful right they and they show mutual care and concern so in the military right we're supposed to be respectful to the the ranks above us inside an operational seal team we do away with that hierarchy these are fragile hierarchies they'll break down very quick we're mm. on even or equal terms much more egalitarian than the rest of the military and and people feel safe to say hey even if you're the the boss hey boss i see things differently and here's why you know mm -hmm. and again part of the it doesn't happen if it's not part of the culture. So. Right. So in the culture code, uh, it was talked a lot about some of those small gestures that all add up to create this culture where people do feel safe to raise their hand and, and make a, a difficult point. Um, as opposed to, I think sometimes people think it's these big dramatic gestures when in fact it isn't. It's just those small daily signals that you're safe it's okay and i'm wondering can you share some of the ones that you've seen either in the in the seal teams or in a more business context give us some examples of what are these small gestures that we could just be adopting and you know, i think again a great question there and, and a point to be made in complex systems any kind of complex whether it's the weather whether it's your brain your body an organization a community mm -hmm. uh small changes can have massive effects they can also right. have no effect recognize that but right. they can have big effect and you know some of those small signals are you know and i say this i said this to dan and he brought it up the other day when we were talking uh as something he still sees in organizations that are particularly in teams that are high performing and that is that formal leader there's lots of informal leaders in the group as well but that formal leader is sometimes the first person to stand up and say hey i, I messed this up um, um and that is a you know that is a signal that that over time says to other people in the group, particularly new people are coming into the group that over time says, hey, it's actually OK to stand up here and talk about our mistakes, our misgivings, our shortcomings, our foibles, whatever they might be. But I would say that's a small signal that can be a very powerful one. Just mm -hmm. that formal leader saying, hey, you know, I messed this up. Here's what I was thinking because I didn't set out to mess up. Right. Here's the information right. I had. Here's what I was thinking, and then here was the outcome, and what happened in between there. That's the complex piece, right? Uh, so that's a, that is a, an important uh, signal, you know. Just pausing to reflect, doing that routinely is also a, 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 an important signal. And when I say reflect, not just personally, but as a group, you know, uh -huh. we we had a formal process in the in the SEAL team. Yeah, we call it the tell me about that. Review. 
but it was a moment to pause and reflect. And uh, in that pausing and reflecting, it was quite often, uh, you know, first of all, rank, all rank came off. And quite often it was the, the most senior guys uh, doing exactly that. Hey, here, I, I messed this up or I did this and I had a surprising outcome. It might not have been a mistake, but I didn't expect something to happen. They, and they talk right. about these things. Right. And it's, we'll it's interesting, it I think. Sorry, I didn't catch the last part. We'll also do it over a beer, which helps yeah. uh, sometimes <laughs> as well. Bet. A lot I of these informal meetings is where a lot of this stuff takes place. So, Right. It takes away some of the inhibition. And what yeah. I'm also hearing is they're not saying I was incompetent or I was reckless. They're saying here's was my hypothesis and then yeah. here's what happened and it didn't go according to what my plan is plan was exactly. so it's really breaking things down to give context um and i think just doing that gives so much of uh, faith helps you have faith in someone's the way they make decisions so even right. though it didn't go according to what they thought it would it actually helps you trust trust them more it does big time and the first time somebody you know kind of steps out of their comfort zone to say hey i, I might have messed this up and then they get punished or ridiculed, right? Then mm. we know this. You, you will never see this again. We start sweeping problems under the carpet, uh, under the rug, if you will. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's not a good trajectory to go down. So, you know, the, like I said. Yeah. yeah. So if one, of your guys, if one of your guys steps forward and says, I think I messed up. Here's how I did it. Yeah. How do you, as a leader encourage that do you say anything in particular how do you lead that or forward that conversation that's a good point and i i still broach this with young seals i go back a couple times a year to uh my former yeah. seal team to talk to young seals ostensibly about leadership but it's really about how how complex systems like teams really work um and this is something i note at the outset is that we will risk our lives to come to the aid of a teammate who made a mistake in combat, right? And got himself in trouble. Yet when we're back here in the, mm. what we call the garrison world, we will, you know, stop at nothing to chop that person off at the knees or cut that person off at the knees because they made a mistake. And it's really an, uh, you know, an, I guess an odd dichotomy, right? Or something that's to me wildly ironic. Um, yeah. Because what we should do, if we say we're learners, well, then when that person makes a mistake, the first thing I would want to ask is, what were you thinking? You know, what were you thinking? Tell me, tell me what were you thinking, what information you had. And let's go from there. And that's not to say that some mistakes don't warrant punishment, but I right. think all mistakes warrant learning from. You know, we can see this in the United States Navy today. We had the issue with uh, uh, two years ago with uh, one of the ships, the, the Theodore Roosevelt, a big aircraft carrier people are crammed on that it's like a small city and covid breaks out uh and it, you know if we recall the spring of 2020 nobody really knew what was going to happen we didn't know much about the virus all we knew was that you know if you got close to it you were going to you were going to die so here's a you know the ship's doctor and the ship's captain trying to figure out what to do in a in an in a in an environment that is uncertain that is novel the novel coronavirus that is ambiguous right, right? and they're you know, they were, they were punished, fired for their 
for their ultimate answer, and that was get everybody off that ship. Uh, when what the Navy should have done is simply said, hey, we might disagree with this, right? There, there might have been some strategic risk there, but we get it. This is a novel uh, situation. It is, uh, there are no elegant solutions in times like that. And what can we learn from this? And how can we get this throughout the rest of the Navy? And what they should have done is what we have done in the SEAL teams. You take the people who are involved in that and you take them to different groups and they tell exactly what they were thinking, what information they were had, what they learned, what they might do differently next time, mm. et cetera, et cetera. So um, that is the should. That is not necessarily the easy thing to do. People get fixated on status, we get fixated on position. And when we do that, as opposed to a shared mission or shared goal, um, you know, then we start thinking that punishment is the first thing we do to people who make mistakes. It's not necessarily a good idea. I would tell you it's a bad idea, it's a good idea. Yeah. poor idea. Well, what I see is they get fixated on self-protection then. And now yeah. you miss access to all that information that you're talking about, the learning from the mistakes, which yeah. I call that intellectual property. Like it's such a valuable asset for companies. Great way to put it. Um, Wow. And it also goes back to that idea of the the all or nothing command and control, which if it ever worked, it's it's certainly not going to work in a VUCA world that we're living in in now. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that, uh, you know, I still go back and teach tactics, command and control, you know, originated in the the military. It was originally meant to manage information that others then acted upon. But what it has come to mean is I'm in command, therefore I'm in control. Mm -hmm. Um, And and those are, those are constructs, right? Uh, It's just, it doesn't work that way. And I had a conversation with a former secretary of defense a couple of years ago, Jim Mattis, um, who's a, who's a, a really great guy, uh, you know, just, just a good person. Right. But he said, well, we, we've misnamed this. We should call it command and feedback. And that's a step in the right direction, but he can't give up the I'm in command piece. Right. And, and in a, inside of a SEAL team, we don't care who's in command. Uh, there are times when the formal leader steps up to say, Hey, we're going this way. You know, we've talked enough about it that he's breaking the tie, but what we should call it is facilitation and feedback and get away Ooh. from command control. What are the things that I can do or we can do to facilitate our success? or at least up the chances of being successful. And how much are we going to be open to the feedback that's going to suggest either we stay the course or we change course. And what you find is, you know, this is human nature, right? We are all open, all kinds of open to feedback that suggests we're doing things right, but totally <laughs> closed off to the feedback that suggests we need to change, you know? Yeah, that's um, painful. Yeah. Inside of an operational SEAL team, we are wide open to that feedback, you know, and that feedback comes in a lot of different forms. It could come in in the shape of a wall of bullets or it could come in the shape of the most junior person in the team saying, hey, I disagree. Uh, Mm -hmm. And our our question then is why? Tell me what your reasoning is. Why do you disagree? What am I missing or what might I be missing? You know, and again, we're off on on a discussion. We have a dialogue. Right. Oh, it just seems like that you just um, you extract so much learning out of situations with that approach. Otherwise, you're just seeing the tip of the iceberg of, of any situation. Right. I agree. So another. Um, which, is the bias, right? which is what? 
It's a bias, Daniel Kahneman. What you see is all there is, right? Well, what we know is what we see is not all there is. It's very little often. Yeah. Exactly. So um, I often talk about how important it is to extract the learning. So I'm all all, uh, in agreement with what you're saying. And it was fascinating to me to read about how often you or how much you rehearsed for the bin Laden mission, because obviously there was so much at stake and it was yeah. so complex and and there was just so much opportunity for things to go awry. Um, could you give us some more detail on that? I mean, how did you structure the the practice or the rehearsal or the training, however you framed them? And then again, into those after action reviews, how did you take the learning from an actor action review and apply it to the next iteration. I'm just really curious in some of the details of that. So we, we do have an advantage that, you know, uh, a typical business does not. Right. And we, that is, we can experiment without Mm. necessarily going into the market to experiment, to do so. (laughs) We can experiment in a really safe place, right. The practice field. Um, And that's a decided advantage of ours. But I would tell you, we, you know, we all use a particular decision-making model, and that is we try and make sense of what's going on. We explore our options. We experiment with some of those options, and then we'll adjust based on the feedback. Um, and over and over and over, that's the way we do things, right? I, I would tell you that all humans do that. We make sense of the world. Mm-hmm. Usually we tell a story about it. We'll explore our options. A lot of times we constrain ourselves because we don't consider the, the the options that seem to be out there on the fringes, the crazy ones. Right. Um, we don't like the word experiment, right? Um, so that, that holds us back as well. Um, and then we really don't like feedback. So even though sometimes we're forced to operate off of feedback, but we embrace that, that whole thing, right? We try and make sense of what's going on. So we're trying to organize our knowledge of the situation. So in this case, we're going into Pakistan. Uh, It's a sovereign country. So we had some, the senior military commander said, Hey, we do this stuff every night. And those of us who understand what the every night mission entails said, absolutely not. We don't invade sovereign countries every night. So what are the civilians going to do in Pakistan? We have no idea. What were the police going to do in Pakistan? We had no idea. What was the military going to do uh, in Pakistan? We had no idea, you know, kind of a funny story. It's funny now about authority bias is early on when we were, you know, read in about two weeks prior to the raid when the, the CIA said, hey, we think this time we've actually found him and here's why we think so. Uh, we had the PhD from the CIA, so all the letters you could possibly want behind your name, I guess, who was an expert on the Pakistani military came out and said, hey, there is no way the Pakistanis can scramble their jets to shoot down your helicopters. They don't have that capability, right? Well, this is the authority figure. So when he said that, we kind of took that off the table. We don't have to worry about that. Well, the first thing the Pakistanis did was they scrambled their jets to shoot down our helicopters, right? Yikes. Which left us like, oh. Thankfully, they went the wrong way, so we don't have to worry about that. But we try it again, back to we try and organize our knowledge to make sense of what's going on. Where are they? What can they do? What are their capabilities? A lot of those were big question marks we didn't know. Um, what are our options here? Well, we were driven, one of those helicopters were forced on us, right? Uh, our, our field of options and just condensed it way down. You must take a helicopter and you must land right on top of the target. 
but we, we explore those options and then we go out and we test them. So that was the, you know, the half a dozen or so full profiles that we did was essentially me taking the plan that the guys had come up with and poking holes in it by throwing curveballs and changers and slide ups and uh, sliders and stuff like that, then allowing them to respond to that in real time and then afterwards talk through it. Um, and so just to, just to pause you there, you the would do a full, a full run through of the whole mission. You had a replica built of right, the full run through of the whole mission. Yeah. Getting in the helicopters, flying a couple hours to landing on a mock target, assaulting it, having role players come as civilians or as police, um, you know, and, and do different things when they were there, you know, try and get into the compound, stand wow. off and, you know, watch, you know, all these different things. And initially with the civilians, the, the, the solution was if the civilians got too close, uh, what was to, to shoot them. Right. Uh, and, I didn't know the answer to this question, but I said to the guys, hey, man, if let's think about this. We're invading Pakistan, right? Uh, this goes all the way back to Westphalia, right? And the doctrine of sovereignty and all that good stuff. We're invading a sovereign country. Maybe we'll be forgiven because this is Osama bin Laden. But if we harm their property and their people, that's probably not a good thing. We've got to come up mm. with a different solution. And I don't know what that solution is, but you guys do work it out. And they did work it out. And what they did was put one of their own guys in a, you know, the, the Pakistani version of the FBI, they have the ISI trained by our FBI, right? It, they wear the same body armor, big yellow letters, ISI with blazers, black, you know, raincoats or jackets that say ISI on the back. And everybody in Pakistan who speaks Urdu still knows ISI by the English letters, ISI. So one of the guys, you know, on the night when civilians started pouring out of their houses, middle-class area of Pakistan, they're not used to having helicopters crash in their backyard uh, and hearing gunfire. When people started coming out of their houses, here was this guy with a bullhorn saying, hey, ISI, everything is fine. Go back inside your houses. And that took that problem right off the, the table. And it was, uh, you know, a really novel solution to what could have become an incredibly mm. complex um, and that novelty was arrived at because of the, 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 that both the functional diversity in the group, the generational diversity, the educational uh -huh. diversity. They started to combine these different aspects, not to say, hey, I'm in command, therefore you do as I say, but to say, I have a point of view and so do you. Uh, I'm together, we're going to have a much better point of view. And can we cobble some of those things together to come up with these novel solutions? And that's exactly what, what they did. And then we would gather afterwards and we'd talk wait, about wait, it. Before you go on, I just want to reinforce what you just yeah. said, which is so important because you didn't say, all right, here guys, here's what you're going to do. And then you laid out this 10 point plan. I, I yeah. love that. You said, I don't have the answer, but I know you guys do. And I think if yeah. a leader says that to their team, it just gives them a sense of, wow, I don't, I didn't know I had knew the answer, but now I know I have the capability. He believes that we have the ability and it just unlocks all this creative problem solving potential. I think it really does. And it unlocks a lot of ownership as well. They own. Yes. Problem. Yeah. Not the guys like me who stayed in the relative safety of Afghanistan, right? The, they own the problem. <laughs> relative safety. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So you were going to say, yeah. and then, so you run the simulations and then you come back and 
an after action review? Like how long does it take and, and what's the structure or the format? Yeah, it, well, it, you know, the, the length, it, it depends, I guess, on context, but the structure is pretty simple. You know, what was planned what actually happened? What went well? What didn't go so well? What did we learn? What will we do differently next time? All of this is feedback based, right? And uh, the feedback we're getting in these, you know, testing or experimental environments is from the role players, but we, uh, you know, we can still learn from that. On the day, I wasn't concerned about the guys uh, being able to respond to unique problems on the ground. What this process does is sharpen that ability to improvise, right? To come up with these novel solutions. Um, and that's really what the process is about. How can we sharpen your ability to improvise uh, and, and, and learn based on the feedback, you know, yes. and they do it well. Yeah. I love that you said that because yeah. that's, that's my whole thing. It's not that you're practicing to handle a specific problem. You're practicing your ability to handle problems and improvise yeah. on the spot. I've never thought of yeah. it quite in that way. So I love you're actually developing that improvisational muscle, not yeah. a, handling yeah. a specific situation. Yeah. How would you, how is, would you talk to a business team that's maybe thinking, well, we're not doing anything so physical. Do you see this translating into the business environment? I, I certainly do. I do this every day. Um, I'm glad that's your answer, by the way. <laughs> One is you start with that, you know, we don't, we can start in a lot of different places, but as I mentioned, that decision-making model, right? How, how are we making sense of the world? We can learn to be better sense makers, right? Mm. Um, those are teachable and learnable skills. Um, learnable being, the, I, I think, the key word there. Uh, and then we, we go on to learning new ways to explore options and not to just put those um sometimes fanciful notions or fanciful options off to the side, right? So we, we want to consider the things that might be far-fetched um, out there on the extreme kind of stuff. Uh, a lot of times people get nervous with that. There's risk involved with that. Well, there's ways we can mitigate that risk, right? Uh, and then we find ways to experiment. That really is context dependent, just as I, you know, we, we did it, you know, on a practice field in, in the SEAL teams, there are ways to experiment uh, with, with doing pilot programs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I almost never say the word experiment. I will use pilot more often because when people hear the word experiment, they were like, oh, I'm not experimenting. Right. Um, or beta. This, yes, exactly. The beta. And then this openness to feedback. And, you know, when you start sharing the stories about how we do this in the SEAL teams, does help people go, you know what, if these guys can, can uh, be open to feedback, so can we, uh, or you tell, you know, I love the, one of the stories is, um, you know, the, uh, mission control, this is Gene Krantz and, uh, the early Apollo missions, right. And you had Apollo one where the, the three astronauts on top of that Saturn five rocket died, burned up, right, right there strapped into the rocket. And afterwards he said, Hey man, nobody raised his or her hand and said, stop, damn it. Uh, and so we're going to change uh, some things here and there's going to be a new price of admission for NASA. And it's not just being competent, right? But we're going to be tough as well. And that by toughness, he meant we're going to be open to feedback, right? And so when Apollo 13 comes along and many people have seen the movie, right? There's the, there's the oxygen tank that has a leak in it, throws them off course. They're, you know, they, they, they're basically breathing carbon dioxide in the inside of the lunar module. there, trying to get back home. Um, 
And at this point is when people come together uh, to solve a really tough problem. So that is another example of, you know, this isn't a SEAL team that's that's doing this stuff. This is, a, you know, a group of astronauts who's doing this mm -hmm. stuff. There are all kinds of examples out there. The stories help, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And when yes, we hear those stories, we start to live those stories, right? Um, they become part of us. There's you know, mirror neurons going off in the brain. We can actually, you know, feel what it's like, you know, hearing some of those SEAL stories, we feel what it's like. And then we, and then we take a step, uh, use that as a metaphor and, and we take it into our own worlds and we start to experiment and we become more open to the feedback, right? I do have a question though, because a lot of, um, you know, the tech teams that I work with, they do have people with a lot of letters after their name, the PhDs, yeah. the MDs, and you know they come from a culture where it's it's it is really hard to be vulnerable to admit that you don't know what would you do in a situation how would you advise them to you know it's it's nice to go in and you know say all right i screwed up but if nobody follows your lead if everybody's like i'm not gonna you know say i screwed up how would you really try to soften that that stance and maybe change some of those biases they have any ideas thoughts well i i think the key tool there and you know we we can there's tools there's a way we use tools and then there's our actual behaviors those are primary drivers of performance in any arena but that is a tough question that you ask and i i would say that story is a tool right um mm. You mentioned signaling. That's a you know a, one of the primary ways in which we um, reinforce culture or change culture. Another word, one another one is incentive, right? We don't it just doesn't have to be monetary incentives, yes. but you know if I start simply, if you're the person in the team that is open to feedback and talking about some of the mistakes you made and what you learned, I might spend a lot of time with you, right? Because and, and other people notice that as well right well what makes uh, Renita so so successful and whether we realize it or not over time we might start to emulate some of those behaviors you know and again when I see that behavior somewhere I resource it right that's like along with the signaling and the storytelling I will resource that behavior not just with a pat on the back but with my attention right uh, I will oh. attend to you in that environment um, and then that we can, you know, there's always point. the negative side of things. There is, you know, just like there are toxic people in a group for whatever mm -hmm. reason. Uh, and sometimes it's necessary to, to subtract people from that group. It's necessary to move people on <laughs> for your good and their good. Um, right. I would say though that, that for me, that's the nuclear option. Even inside of a SEAL team, if you made a mistake, we always said, hey, we, we will, how do we set the conditions so that this person can recover? It might have been moving them to a different team to give them a second chance and sometimes a third chance, uh, or you know, they might've stayed with the same team, but they got a coach or something like that. Someone who was you know, working with them to, to change some of those behaviors over time. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, the, the removing people is a nuclear option, the attending right. to people, resourcing that, uh, your behaviors, your positive That's ones. That's such a great point because it's, it's a resource that it doesn't cost, have to cost money, it costs energy it and effort. But it's such a valuable resource. And if that's the way you yeah. allocate it, then you you incentivize people, like you said. And yeah. I have seen miracles happen where somebody who just seems so intransigent sees that they're, the way they've always done things isn't going to work in the future. And so they yeah. are willing to change at that point.
And that's a great trigger right there because we hear this all the time. I have, it has come out of my mouth, right? That's not the way we've always done it. Uh, And we, uh, you know, when you see the the movies these days of of special operations guys, they all have night vision goggles on, right? Well, we didn't start that way, right? In the early 90s, we had night vision goggles, but the old camp said, well, you know, the guys in the old camp said, well, we don't, we can't wear these to patrol, move through the jungle or the woods or the mountains at night. That's not how we do it. That's not how we've uh, always done it. We put them around our neck. And when we get to the, you know, to the building where the hostage is being held, then we'll put the night vision goggles on and we'll go inside and rescue the hostage. Um, well, there was the younger guys, me included in the 90s, uh, who said, hey, no, I, uh, we can see with these things on. So it makes sense that we would, you know, constantly have them on and we patrol through the jungle and the mountains and the woods and all that stuff. So what do we do? Well, we tested it, right? We went to the worst place in the United States to do this patrolling. And that is Stennis, Mississippi, these mangrove swamps where there are just vines and everything everywhere and water and it's nasty. And, and we did two patrols. One we did without night vision goggles on mm. in the pitch dark. A-B testing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. And, you know, we, we made it to the target. We were loud. We're stumbling around. We lost people en route. We had to gather back up before we made our final push to the target. And then the next night we did it with night vision goggles on. And lo and behold, you could oh. see. You know, and that was the test or the experiment that convinced the old guys, hey, well, the way we might have always done it is perhaps not the right way. And, right. I, you know, eight years later, I was a guy saying, you know, uh, when it came to jumping out of an airplane with night vision goggles on, I was now the old guy. And I said, nope, that's not the way we've always done it. Interesting. Yeah. But then I was proven wrong. You know, uh, we had a guy that jumped out with night vision goggles on. I thought he was going to die. That's an assumption. This is not the way we've always done it. Oh. There's night vision goggles out. Your hell, your parachute is going to get wrapped around those things and, and you die. Well, I he see. did not die. Uh, and that, that experiment. And everybody jumps out with night goggles. Wow. Yeah, so bringing that actual experience, this is why it can't be an intellectual exercise, just sitting around talking about things often. Yeah, yeah it can't be a list. doesn't work. Yeah. Wow. Um, just looking at my, oh, you know, I wanted to also, I think we've already touched on it, but the actual phrase we haven't talked about, which is the hive mind. Um, and so, and we've talked about how you, the team was sort of, there wasn't this clear leadership where that everybody was just following them. And it seems to me that we could be using more of that, especially now when teams are more project-based, you know, you might be reporting to one person for a project and then changing to a different leader or a different project. So what is the, the, your definition or your idea of hive mind and, and what's the key or keys to creating that? I think we have to be very careful, right? Words matter. So if we say hive, and that means everybody's marching in the same direction, mm. I think we got it wrong, right? Yes, that's okay. more like that's more like the Borg from Star Trek, right? Um, and this comes down to governance models we see in not just in humans, but in the natural world, whether it's ants or bees. You know, it's this. There's the primacy of the individual or the primacy of the shared problem. And if we think of that. Uh, shared problem as the, you know, the goal is the top of the mountain, there's always more than one way to the top of the mountain, right? Uh, And if we have the resources, we have to take as many of those ways as we can to get there. So in in 
the way I would use that hive mind is, is as long as you're focused on the same goal, you can take different ways to get there. And in fact, you should take those different ways to get there. If you are uh, more, everybody has to march in the same direction. And there are times when, when we wouldn't mm-hmm. want people, to, right? What, you want people to get a, you know, a vaccine in, in the, in the, in the depths of COVID. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but you know, that marching in the same direction is what you see in, in militaries. That's coherent behavior, the fancy term. Right. And that's not necessarily a good thing all the time. Uh, right. We want the complex behavior where there are different teams and different groups taking different routes to the top of that mountain where value dwells. Right. Um, and then, you know, juxtapose that against the primacy of the individual. Here's where you see the uh, I'm in charge. This is command and control. You do as I tell you. If you don't, I punish you. This is what you see in dominance hierarchies or coercive hierarchies, whatever you want to call them. Uh, those might be those kinds of hierarchies do get things done. Very good at getting things done. It's just not necessarily the right thing that gets done. Right. Um, <laughs> and you can look at the United States military. Our one loss record uh, is not a great one, particularly you know mm. post World War II, when you have a very uh, complex world where you know enemies adapt and change, and we don't. And it's because we have this uh, this coherent behavior hive mindset in that regard where we all have to do the same thing we all have to look the same we all have to dress the same our hair has to look the same etc 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 relationships are really specialized you know you can talk to the person beneath you uh you know but you you really can't have relationships with them so um you know that's not that's not what i would consider a hive mind some people would i take more as i said the the earlier one where we have this focus on the shared problem uh, and we might be taking different ways to get there, but the constraint is the goal. And we are all focused on that goal or aligned. Mm. So. That to me is such a clear distinction, a very helpful distinction. If you're focused on the problem or you're focused on me or that self-protection me. that we mentioned earlier. Yeah. And I think yeah. basically this whole conversation has been, how do we develop that hive mind by, by being aware that we have biases especially that authority bias. And then how can you create a culture where people feel safe to step forward and give their best ideas and and speak up when they see something isn't going well. So, and that's how you find the the most creative solutions to problems like the ISI guy going in for the civilians. Yeah. So um, it's, it, it just seems to me that's the way of the future because we do have big problems to solve and complex situations to get through. I hope so. And when we, you know, but we have eons of evolution to overcome. So when I say to my friends who are biologists that it's, it's high time we overcome our own biology, they, they get a little, they get a little freaked out, which is, you know, that is hard to do. And when times are tense, we will fall back on that unilateral mindset where I'm in charge You do, as I say, uh, when in fact, what we should do, uh, in many of those situations, if not all of them is take a big deep breath and go, you know, let's wrap our arms around each other and figure this thing out together. Oh, Um, wow. Well, that's a great setup because the name of my program is evolving faster. You know, how can we evolve past our our biology and our our conventional ways of doing things? So um, this has been fantastic. I love all the stories and the insights that you've shared. 
Um, okay. One final question that just to kind of bring this all to a head is for people who are listening and they just want one place to, to, to kind of dive in or nudge into this approach, is there one particular leadership quality that they could focus on just to, to start? You know, is it the accountability? Is it the empathy? What are your thoughts? So my thoughts as a complex systems guy, I would say, mm -hmm. first off, there is no single quality or set of qualities that uh, would ensure uh, success in any environment. But if you are, as you're doing right now, holding me down and making me say uncle, I would say that the one that matters most to me is humility. Um, uh, yes. You know, all, you know the, the ones that you mentioned there, and you know, particularly empathy, uh, obviously, or compassion. These are these are you know powerful qualities as well. But that the the humility piece, uh, you know, is just, it's, you know, I, I've seen it at work. I know what it can do. Uh, if formal leaders are humble, other people are going to start to emulate those behaviors. Humility doesn't mean that you know I'm going to bow down in front of everybody. Mm -hmm. It just means I, I have an honest sense of weaknesses, and I'm not going to hide from them. You know, and uh, and I, that's a recognition. Then if I have a strength where you're weak and you have a strength where I'm weak, well, together we're going to be able to, you know, to overcome that. So that humility piece is key for me, you know, yeah. and of the, of the seals that I have looked up to in my lifetime, um, they were incredibly competent, but they were also incredibly humble, you know, and, and I, I just, I've, I've learned to respect that. It's a powerful combination, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the High EQ Founder. If you enjoyed this conversation, why not share it with a fellow founder? And if you want more strategies for leveling up as a leader, hop onto the mailing list for my High EQ Founder newsletter. Link in the show notes. Until next time, remember, whoever evolves faster wins. Wins.